uh, before we get into our, our subject this morning, let's bow our heads and hearts and let's have a word of prayer uh, together. Father in heaven, we sing praises to your name this morning. It's a beautiful Sabbath day. Uh, Any time that we can uh, come apart from the world, that we can rest and look at Jesus uh, without any distractions and come together with like-minded believers, it is a wonderful day. And uh, we praise you for your love for us, for your mercy and long-suffering. We realize more and more, Father, how loving you are to each one of us and how you do really want us to be saved and back in the family again. We praise your name for that. And Father, we do come up short of the mark. Uh, Too often, we do. And we pray that you will forgive us. We claim the blood of Jesus for that. And we pray that you will send the Holy Spirit and angels that excel in strength to to help us in our walk so that we will hit the mark, um, depending solely on the merit of Jesus Christ uh, for all that we do and His righteousness. Help us to exercise the faith that we need uh, to be successful and to bring glory to thy name. Father, I pray for those on our prayer lists and and lift up before you uh, those mentioned here this morning, Lynn, who's dealing with uh, these these pain issues. We pray that you be with the doctors and and the nurses and techs there. And and may, you know, you work a miracle that will bring her and her husband uh, to the the throne, to the cross, and into the family. I pray for Christopher, who's... um, got serious issues and i know there are demons involved in his situation i pray that you send angels that excel in strength to remove these demons uh, he may have a clearer mind to think uh, lord with the the frontal lobe with reasoning and that he can give his heart completely to 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 the lord and uh, and ultimately be saved we want that for all our children all our families uh, father we lift up bob in that situation as well and we pray for all those who are, are hurting. We lift up those who have lost loved ones just in the last week. These police officers who have sworn to uphold the law and to protect who were ambushed and being ambushed. And this is just pure evil. It is just pure evil. And we pray, Lord, that you will surround these people and that good may come out of this bad. Uh, and, and we mourn with our nation over these things. We know the big picture. You've shared it with us. And we pray that we may be a beacon of hope and light uh, to all around us. And uh, may Jesus uh, shine through and people give their hearts to Him. I pray humbly, Lord, that you give me the words to speak this morning. This is an incredible subject. We really, really uh, need to understand at the, at the foundation so that our walk in, in with the Lord is on on a true path, and uh, we won't be deceived. I thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us, and for hearing this prayer. It is asked from the heart, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. In our last study uh, together, we looked at the only Bible definition of sin, as you recall, those who are with us. And and it's three phases, remember? Sin is the transgression of God's Ten Commandment law. Uh, in the Greek, it is that word that means lawlessness. Okay? But we found in, in studying this that it, it means it's shooting for the mark of God's law and it's it's coming up short of it. And we saw that there, there were three phases of sin. And these three uh, phases were described as sin, transgression, and iniquity. And uh, we know this because the Lord God, our Lord God said in describing His own name, which is, He was describing His character there in Exodus 34 and verse 7, and He said, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving what? Remember, iniquity, transgression, and sin. We took a good look at these three phases and uh, I think rightly conclude that what Paul said in Romans 3.23, remember what he said, all have sinned and what did he say? Come short, see, of the glory of God. We come short of that mark. We come short of the character of God. 
And so we see, after our study the last time together, that what Paul is saying is exactly true. All have come short. All have sinned, except the Lord Jesus Christ. The question then is, at least in my mind, I hope it's in yours as well, the question is, why does this coming short happen? Why do we sin? Why do we transgress? Or why do we commit iniquity? And I hope to give an answer uh, from God's Word in this study here with you. Have you, have you ever done something? I'm, now, I speak for myself, but I'm pretty confident that some of you have had this experience as well. Have you ever done something and then asked yourself, what were you thinking? I think most of us probably have, haven't we? I had a few experiences growing up when my dad would ask me that question. What were you thinking? And my answer usually was, I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that something? And, and it seemed as though I really didn't know what I was thinking, but I want to tell you something, my brain did know. How does something like that happen? You know, What were you thinking? And as you contemplate this and consider this, if anyone had a good reason to ask such a question as someone, I would think it would be God, wouldn't it? You see, he created a perfect world and then two perfect human beings uh, to inhabit a beautiful garden that was made just for them. And these two humans had perfect physical bodies that continuously reflected the glory of God. They were not falling short of the mark, right? They were hitting the mark continuously. Now, how were they able to do this? Well, let's begin back there in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, let's look at verses 26 and 27. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness right so they were made after what they were made in the image of God after the likeness of God so God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female created he them man was to bear God's image that's both outwardly an outward resemblance but also more importantly really in their character. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45, notice this. It says, The sinless pair were clothed with a covering of light and glory such as the angels wear. Isn't that remarkable? So they had this outer covering, but more importantly the reflection of God's glory was inward as well. Not just the outward appearance, but the inward. And the outward was a covering light of glory such as the angels wear. Perfect bodies enshrouded by a covering provided by God himself, as she says, uh, and as we read, the glory of God. These two people had perfect bodies. Now, we, we can't imagine that, can we? Because we, we don't have perfect bodies. No one has a perfect body here on this earth. But they had perfect bodies. And even more importantly, remember we're talking about not just the outward appearance of it, but the inward, they were controlled by a mind that was crafted by the Creator. Contemplate that. They had a perfect body, but more importantly, what controlled that perfect body was a perfect mind that was created by the Creator. Let's think about the human brain that God formed there with His own hands. Think about the brain. Scientists today, they still don't comprehend the complexity of the human brain. But, you know, the way technology is and the way it has advanced, uh, more and more about the brain is being discovered. The human brain weighs only about three pounds. You realize that? So when you step on the scales and you see how much you weigh, 
only about three pounds of that is your brain. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, make you go, oh, man, I need a bigger brain. <laughs> I wish I could say my brain weighed, you know, 50 pounds, whatever. No, but our human brain weighs about three pounds. And, and but it's estimated by these scientists to have about 100 billion cells. Now, I'm going to break down the brain from what, what technology and what scientists have found. Uh, just a little bit. Most of these cells are called neurons. Okay, A neuron is basically an on and off switch. This is just like the one you use uh, in your homes to you know turn your lights on and off. Now, the neuron is either in a resting state, which means the switch is off, or it is shooting an electrical impulse down a wire, just like when you turn your light on. It sends that electricity down that wire up to your light. It has a cell body, a long wire that's called an axon, and at the very end it has a little part that shoots out a chemical. See? Now I wish I could show you pictures because that would help quite a lot, quite a lot. Uh, but try to picture this in your, in, you know, in your mind. <laughs> This chemical goes across a gap, and they call that gap a synapse. And it triggers another neuron on the other side, and that sends a message to your body, see? And there are a lot of these neurons that are sending messages down that long axon wire. And each of these billions of axons in your brain, in your mind, is generating actually a small amount of electrical charge. In fact, I read that uh, they, they figure, some scientists have estimated, that the, the electrical charge that's going on, on average, in a person's mind is equal to a 60-watt bulb. Isn't that amazing? A 60-watt bulb. Sorry, I had to do something there. Now, doctors have learned that measuring this electrical activity in, in a person's brain can tell how it works. They have a device, and I'm sure you've probably heard of it. This device that measures electrical activity in the brain is called an EEG for short. Have you ever heard of that? It's an electroencephalograph. That's the big, long name of it, Okay. But they, and because it's a long name, they shorten it up to EEG. Each of the uh, billions of neurons in our brains, they spit out chemicals that trigger other neurons, and different neurons use different types of chemicals. Now, some of these chemicals are called, well, all these chemicals actually, they're called transmitters, and, and they're given names like, you know, epinephrine, um, norepinephrine. Dopamine, have you ever heard of that? Now, knowing that the brain uses electric impulses and that the brain uses different chemicals, it helps us to understand that too much or too little of either can cause dangerous things to happen. Would you agree with that? Let's look at the brain. Maybe I can explain it a little bit better in this way. Let's look at the brain as an orchestra. Okay? In an orchestra, you have different musical sections, right? There is a percussion section, there's a string section, a woodwind section, and so on, right? You've, you've all seen orchestras. Each has its own job to do, and it needs to work closely with all the other sections, right? In order to make beautiful music. When playing music, each section waits for the conductor, see? And the conductor raises a baton and all the members of the orchestra begin playing at the same time and they play in the same note and they play this song. And this is really a good example of how the brain works. Now they used to think uh, of the brain as a big computer. And I've heard that before. But really, they're discovering more and more. It's more like a bunch of little computers all working together in a network. And the thought came into my mind, you can think of the brain as its own world wide web. 
<laughs> a big network of computers. It's incredible. It's really incredible. And they've just they've just touched on how complex the the brain is. There's so much so much about it that they just do not understand. And it just raised in my mind that, you know, that uh that scripture Psalms 139:14 I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. I will praise the Lord because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, it's not my intention to go through the entire structure of the brain. I couldn't anyway. I, you know, In fact, it is like brain surgery. I'm not a brain surgeon, okay? But... Uh, um, I can't name you all, you know, all all the parts, what they do, but we need to understand some of the basics of our physiology if we want to have better physical and better mental health, so we can make right choices and have the best spiritual health that that will aid in helping us to hit the mark of God by the choices we make. Now, the biggest and the most advanced part of the brain is the frontal lobe. It's right there in the front. It's the first thing. It's in your forehead. You know, remember when I said you do something, you go, What were you thinking? Often I'll hit myself in the forehead. What were you thinking? Like I've got to jar my reasoning center to answer my question. What were you thinking? You know? The frontal lobe is where, you know, planning and organizing and managing emotions takes place. Among some other things. That's not the only place and the only thing that it does. But simply put, it is the reasoning center of the brain that helps us to control our passions and our actions. You know, to say no to things that our passions really want us to do. That's where it comes from. That frontal lobe, that reasoning center. Now let's go back to the garden. Adam and Eve were created with a perfect mind that was in complete control of the passions of their heart. The higher brain was in control, and it's referred to sometimes as the higher brain. Because the higher brain was in control, they were wearing a robe of righteousness provided by God Himself. So they would hit the mark of God every time in every choice that they made. That's We can understand that, right? Because they were perfect. But it wasn't anything still in themselves that made them perfect. They were created in God's image, right? Both outwardly it showed God's image and inwardly. It's not like they were robots. They still had freedom to choose, but because of that um, supernatural righteousness of God, their higher brain was in control. And they hit the mark every time. They reflected the glory of God. And so you could see that on the outside by the glow that they had. See, But something changed. Something changed. Remember that God had given that holy couple a test of obedience, didn't he? They were told not to eat the fruit of a certain tree. But because they listened and they gave heed to the lies of the devil, what happened? They made a decision to disobey God. And they ate the fruit from that forbidden tree. They, for the first time in their entire life, missed the mark of God. They sinned. And while they were choosing disobedience, friends, an incredible change occurred in their brains. Genesis 3 and verse 6. It says, and when the woman saw, right, that's with her eyes, right, that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now notice the change that was happening. When created, their mind had been in unity, you see, with the desires of God. Continuous unity with God and His desires. They knew and they understand that 
they, you know, they understood that there was one tree that they were to avoid. They loved God. They had no desire to eat of that tree. They didn't go each day walking around looking at it and wondering. They had no desire. They hit God's mark of obedience every single time. They had never made the choice to sin. Remember, to miss the mark by falling short of it. But then Eve, what happened? Eve found herself near the tree one day, didn't she? She didn't choose to go over there. She got busy working. She got separated from her husband. And then she realized, all of a sudden, here she is by the tree. And as she was near the tree, she was greeted by the devil who was speaking through a serpent. And she listened to the serpent, which was really the devil, wasn't it? And then Eve told herself, what'd she tell herself? The tree was good for food. After all, God had created it, right? And as she continued to look, she realized that it was a beautiful tree with beautiful fruit. And to top it off, she believed the devil's lie that it was a very special tree that would make the person who ate of it very wise. Wise like God himself. And that's why God had forbidden them to eat it, she thought. Now think about that. She's looking at this tree and there's nothing but beauty about it. It kind of gives us a little insight of when first uh, sin first appeared in Lucifer in heaven. Just imagine all the other angels, they looked up to Lucifer. He led them. He was a beautiful creature. Maybe the most beautiful that God had created. Many of them, I'm sure, desired to be like Lucifer. And that was the hook, wasn't it? And here's the hook for Eve. She thought, that's why God doesn't want us to eat it. Because we'll become like God. And isn't that what the devil told her? From Councils on Health, page 345, notice this. She says, when minds are turned away from God, the tempter can bring them under his rule. He can control humanity. And we studied about that in our series about spiritual possession. And I encourage anybody who hasn't heard those studies uh, to go to, the, go to the, the site, go to our Facebook page, and, and listen to that series. Uh, you'll learn quite a lot about demon possession and about spiritual possession, how Satan controls. But let me ask you, we're looking at this, what is being appealed to here with Eve? Is it the reasoning center of the brain, the frontal lobe, that's being appealed to? Yeah, not so much, right? There is a part of the mind, you see, called the hypothalamus. It's often referred to as the lower brain. Remember I mentioned the higher brain was in control when they were created? Well, there's also a lower brain. And the hypothalamus, what it does, it organizes and and it, it controls many of our complex emotions. It controls our feelings and our moods. The hypothalamus controls all the motivation, uh, motivational states, you know, like um, hunger, appetite, uh, the amount of food we take in, and everything to do with the concept of pleasure, including, you know, satisfaction, comfort, uh, creative activities. It's it's essentially why we physically enjoy the things that we do. See? That's what it controls. Now the neurons in the hypothalamus produce a number of uh, hypothalamic neurotransmitters which relay information and instruction to all parts of the brain and the body. Sometimes that information, those neurotransmitters, will overload the frontal lobe. And when that happens, it actually physically slows down the capacity to maintain control of our reasoning abilities. It actually deadens the capacity to make right choices. And the lower brain is no longer then subject to the higher power of the mind. And then we make decisions based more upon feelings and emotions. And this is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. 
They chose to disobey God because the reasoning center became clouded by passion and emotion, and their brain was physically changed because of their choice to disobey. The lower brain then took the ascendancy, you see, over the higher. They lost that robe of God. Their desires were no longer to bring glory to God, but to please themselves first. And that change of character, that change in their mind, then was reflected outwardly, you see. Genesis 3 and verse 7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. You see, friends, as soon as they gave control of the reasoning center over to the lower brain, they chose to disobey God and they lost their clothing of light and glory. Because then the inward character was not the character of God anymore, but their own. And it was reflected outwardly. They were naked. They saw that they were naked. The glow was gone and they were filled with guilt. They knew that they were no longer representing the image of God. And then what did they do? They tried to cover up that decision they made, that disobedience, by making their own clothing. Clothing that would cover their physical nakedness, but not their spiritual nakedness, see? As if God would never know the difference. You know, it's like he would show up and say, you know, there's something different about you too, but I just can't put my finger on it. But I want you, what I want you to, to get from this is that their mind had changed from being perfect and always hitting the mark of God to being imperfect and falling short of it. They once had the ability, now it wasn't of themselves, but because of their unity with God, they had this ability to shun evil because the higher powers of the mind would make right choices through the inward dwelling of the covering of God. But now it was difficult because the lower passions greatly influenced the decision-making process and they had lost the glow of God's covering and wore their own covering instead. And this is called the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of sin. And no matter how much we try to explain it or understand it, it is a mystery. And all we can do, and all we can depend upon is what God has told us about it, and that's what we're doing in this series. We can get a general kind of understanding about it, but it's a mystery. It's the mystery of iniquity. And people try to explain it, you know, And some people, they explain it this way. They say, well, God created Satan, right? No, God did not create Satan. And because we can't quite come to grips, we can't figure that out, that's why it's a mystery. But from that moment on, Adam and Eve, they tended to choose their own desires, you see, which led to sin and death instead of choosing the desires of God, which led to happiness in life. And this is the condition of humanity today. Most, I'll say most of humanity today. They're living according to their feelings and passions, which leads to choices that are not healthy. It's not physically healthy, not mentally healthy, not spiritually healthy. And the result is sin guilt, unhappiness, disease, and death. And not just the first death, as we discovered about sin and what Paul's talking about. We're talking about eternal death, the second death. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at verses 8 to 10. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
One thing that always jumps out at me, and I love this about our God, it shows how loving He is. He went searching for them. Do you think God knew that Adam and Eve had sinned? It wasn't a surprise, a shock, was it? God knew what had happened, and yet God still went searching for them. But we notice here, Adam and Eve saw their nakedness. They physically and spiritually experienced the guilt of their disobedience, and they tried to cover it up and make up for it by making what? They made their own clothing. And then they hid from God. Maybe God will never find out. We can hide in this garden forever. He'll never know. Right? Isn't it just strange how the mind works when we try to cover sin? Jonah tried to run away from God because he wouldn't obey God. Yeah, God God doesn't know where Jonah's going. Right? But God sees all things. Not just outward things, but inward. And their guilt remained no matter how much they tried to cover up and hide. You see, friends, that... That is all we can do with the guilt of our disobedience to God. That is all we can do when we fall short of God's mark. We try to cover it up because we can't remove it. And we try so many different ways to cover it up. We try different types of clothing and fashion, you know. Just like Adam and Eve, they fashion their own clothes, right? We try adornments. Because it takes attention away from really us. People look at the adornments, right? We try entertainment. We try to escape, see? Through entertainment or alcohol or drugs. Um, Music. Even intellectual achievements, you know? What we eat. Lascivious behavior and on and on and on. We try to cover it up. We're searching for that thing that not only covers it up, but might just remove it and give us the added pleasure at the same time. That's what most of Christianity is today. Oh yeah, we'll give the lip service, but we want the pleasure of what our passions desire. All the things that may appease our senses, but they don't really appease our reasoning center. You see... It tends to know the truth of our condition. Even though it's kind of been beaten down by the hypothalamus. It still knows. And that's why we try to cover it up. But it's powerless to change it. And if that were it, friends, we would be lost to a life of unhappiness and death. But thank God that's not it. There is hope for all of us. And the only way that we can possibly hit the mark of God and not fall short of it or shoot to the right or left of it or even shoot the opposite way of the mark is to allow God's mercy and forgiveness to prevail and allow Him to clothe us with that glory that Adam and Eve had once again. And friends, that is the only way. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Is that what the Bible tells us? Genesis chapter 3, let's go back to that. Here's the promise for it. And this is a promise from the loving God. It's not a God who wants to condemn, but to save. He had every right to condemn, did he not? When he came into that garden and he saw that couple, that he, when he created, they were a holy pair, and now they're not. He had every right to destroy them. But that's not what he does. He searches them out. And a loving God gives him a provision. Genesis 3, 14, 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shall eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God said, I am going to make a way to put enmity. That man will have an enmity towards you and sin. 
That's a hatred. You see, in disobeying God, Adam and Eve, they lost that supernatural strength that he provided to hate sin. But right here, God said, I'll put that hatred within their reach again. I will provide someone to remove the guilt from them and through his ministry in their behalf and for them change their desires from evil to good. Their higher powers will once again rule over the lower passions by His grace. He will provide a robe of righteousness that they can wear that will give them the ability to hit the mark of God every single time. And Essentially, I'll change them back into my image through the seed who I will send in my name. And all will have a choice to be changed or not through this seed that will come. And friends, you've heard me say it over and over that there is a battle that wages for the control of our mind. Have you heard me say that? The battle is for our mind. My wife just said a billion times. Oh, a million. Well, that's a little better. (laughs) But I'll tell you, it's a real battle. It is a real battle between God and Satan. You see, God loves us and He wants to save us from the devil, but He will not coerce our will. We do remain free moral agents. So we have a choice to make, don't we? God appeals to us through our reasoning center. And where's that located? That's in the frontal lobe, isn't it? That's what it says in Isaiah 1 and verse 18. It says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And as we learned in the series about spiritual possession, Satan, he appeals to us through our senses, through the lower passions of our flesh. And that's the same way he appealed to Eve. He didn't come to Eve and say, Hey, Let's reason together about this. He knew that wouldn't work. What comes into our mind through our senses has an effect upon our brain, and it affects the decisions that we make to either exercise faith and hit the mark or choose to do it ourselves and fall short of the mark. All these externals around us have an effect upon our mind. So, for example, what we put before our eyes, it affects our brain. I think we would agree with that, right? There was a study that was done. It was reported in the Los Angeles Times uh, a few years ago. It was done by a psychologist. Uh, His name was Simon Kuhn uh, at a university in Belgium. He found that frequent video gamers have brain differences with people who don't do video games. And according to, to the article, notice what, what, what he said. He said 14-year-olds who were frequent video gamers had more gray matter in the rewards center of the brain than peers who didn't play video games as much suggesting that gaming may be correlated to changes in the brain much as addictions are. They found that frequent gamers had greater brain activity when they were given feedback that they were losing. This is similar to a response seen in addicted gamblers, the authors noted, who have increased levels of the brain chemical dopamine in the ventral striatum when they are losing money. I think we, we all understand and have the experience that by beholding we become changed. Am I right? So we better be sure that what we are beholding is for our best health. Wouldn't you agree? This study here showed that what kept an addiction was the pleasure senses of our brain were being continually stimulated. That's what dopamine does. So, when it, when it comes time to quit, we do not have the strength to do it. 
because of the incredible intense pleasure that it has brought, we want to come back and come back and come back. And that's what addiction is, isn't it? King David, he said in Psalms 101 verse 3, he said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. So he understood. He came to a point where he understood by beholding we can become changed. So he he said, I'm not going to put any wicked thing before my eyes. It will change me. What we listen to. And it doesn't necessarily have to be music. We listen to a lot of things, don't we? But especially music. It has a profound effect upon our brain. Let's think about music for just a second. Music almost exclusively bypasses our reasoning center. And it appeals directly to our lower brain. And listening to the wrong music can be a very dangerous thing for our physical and spiritual health. It can alter our heartbeat. Do you know that? It can change, actually change our brain waves. And what happens is it hypnotizes our sensibilities, our reasoning. Remember what I said before? The hypothalamus, it can flood, in essence, the frontal lobe. And, and so we can't make right choices. We, our brain becomes kind of foggy and we, we start to lean towards the pleasure center more and choose those things over what our reasoning center might tell us. And this is kind of what music does. It, or can do. Not all music does this, of course. But it can hypnotize our sensibilities. Satan is a master musician, friends. He uses ungodly music to gain control of our minds through this mesmerizing media. And this is why the devil controls the entertainment medias in the world today. Especially those in Hollywood and the music industry. I mean, it should come, uh, uh, shouldn't come as a shock uh, uh, to you when you see all these famous music artists using satanic gestures and, and, and bowing before the idols of the false gods of ancient Egypt, you know, in their videos and live performances. That shouldn't be a shock to any of us. We've talked about it before, about who the leaders in this industry are devoted to. They're not devoted to God. Even those who profess to be devoted to God, their actions show otherwise. They're deceived. Music is a very powerful tool that the devil can use to flood that frontal lobe, see, and and destroy our reasoning abilities. He hypnotizes us. Let me share this with you from the book Christian Education, page 62. Music was made to serve a holy purpose, to lift the thoughts to that which is pure, noble, and elevating, and to awaken in the soul devotion and gratitude to God. Friends, I will put forth, you listen to music, and if it's music that God would accept, it will be music that lifts your thoughts to what is pure, noble, and elevating. And it should awaken in you Devotion and gratitude to God. She goes on, she says, What a contrast between the ancient custom and the uses to which music is now too often devoted. How many employ this gift to exalt self instead of using it to glorify God? A love for music leads the unwary to unite with world lovers and pleasure gatherings where God has forbidden his children to go. Thus, that which is a great blessing when rightly used, and it is. Music is a great blessing that God created when it's rightly used. But she says it becomes one of the most successful agencies by which Satan allures the mind from duty and from the contemplation of eternal things. If you listen to the right kind of music, I mean, there have been studies of that as well. Listening to the right type of music according to God's principles, it increases brain capacity. It has been shown to calm aggression. It even promotes good health. 
So music has a profound effect upon our mind, and we need to learn what is the right kind of music to, to promote good health so that we can make right decisions that hit the mark and bring glory to God, and what kind of music damages our health and our spirituality and will lead us down the path to the lake of fire. I think it's very important to know the difference, don't you? I hope to re-edit my series on the language of music, and uh, maybe I can get it uploaded soon, or I might just record it again. I might make some changes, go through it, and I'll pray about that, but uh, I'll let you all know. Uh, it gets a little bit more in-depth about that, about music and such, principles. Um, talking about our senses, what we breathe can change our brain, can it? In disastrous ways, Right? Some scents are, are poisonous. It can damage the brain immediately. I think it's obvious that tobacco, you know, destroys not only our lungs, but it does destroy brain cells. But there are those who, uh, it's amazing to me, would disagree with me on that. <laughs> I just find it incredible. Yeah, usually it's someone who smokes. You know, sometimes I see what's happening around, especially dealing with the youth today, I think that Satan has diluted the truth so much that today um, people, especially our youth, they find it hard to trust anybody. So they live by their own rules. And that's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Hmm? What we touch has an effect for good or bad. You know, uh, many cosmetics have toxins that uh, are absorbed into the skin that affect our health. And that does affect our reasoning ability. Um, lasciviousness, you know, uh, it's rampant today. Even in God's professed church, and it deals a lot with the pleasure of touch, skin to skin. That's sexual mm -hmm. promiscuity. Right, sexual promiscuity. Uh, and I won't go any further into that, but just consider that pornography has gone from a $10 million business in 1970 to $13 billion in 2014. Let that sink in a little bit. One of the most, uh, I believe, most underrated senses that the devil uses uh, to destroy our reasoning center is that of taste. What we put into our mouth goes into our bloodstream, which goes to our brain. <clears throat> damaging chemicals, toxins going right to our brain to affect our ability to choose between what is right and what is wrong. To have a hatred uh, for sin or a hatred for God, see? And as we saw in our series about spiritual possession, it aids the devil actually in, in caging our will. We can so weaken ourselves that our will be, will become weak and he can then possess us cage our will. You see, my friends, the devil is tempting us all the time through our senses. And he does that because he wants to destroy our brain. He wants to destroy our brain to the point that we can no longer reason between what's right and what is wrong. Between what sin is and what righteousness is between hitting the mark by God's grace and falling short of it. That's what he wants. He feeds us spiritual placebos that make us think we're on our way to happiness and salvation when in reality we're on our way to disease and eternal death. And make no mistake, he wishes for us all to perish along with him. So he does whatever he can to make that happen. And all he needs is to keep us locked into one sinful pleasure, one unrepentant sin, and we are lost for eternity. We will have a place in the lake of fire and be ashes and never exist. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, He said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Friends, do you wish to have an abundant life free from the disease of sin? Do you want to stop falling short, but instead hit the mark of God? You know, the French-born American microbiologist 
and he was a Pulitzer Prize author as well, René Dubois, he once said, What happens in the mind of man is always reflected in the disease of his body. Isn't that a remarkable statement? In order to have the strength to overcome sin and hit the mark, we must have a changed mind. It must be made like that of Christ, you see. He's the only man that never sinned. The Apostle Paul, he had his eyes opened to his spiritual nakedness while on the way to Damascus. And what was he, why was he going to Damascus? He was going there to kill the followers of Jesus or imprison them. But Paul had his mind changed by Christ. He then understood that in order to have our guilt removed and to live a happier life, we must be changed by God. Because all our righteous attempts fall short of the mark. And Paul would know because he was a Pharisee. He boasted at how he kept the law of God. He realized that he never kept it when he met Jesus. But Paul saw that all have sinned and have fallen short. So they need something that they, they do not naturally possess in order to hit the mark. This is why he exclaimed in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, when we have a right mind like that of Christ, our behavior will show it. That's why Jesus said, By their fruits ye shall know them. Because the fruits show what's going on inside. If we are reckless regarding what we read, watch, eat, dress, and listen to, then our character is going to show it. It will show the fig leaves that we have adorned ourselves with. We will continually fall short. We will be in a condition of perpetual unfaithfulness to God. You see, because sin starts in our head. The outward act of sin is just the fruit of what has already been decided in our mind. This is why Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 20 to 23, He said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. That's what Jesus is saying to us. It starts in our head. If we want a righteous character, we must have a righteous mind that establishes a pattern of right habits. From the book Child Guidance, page 199, it is by a repetition of acts that habits are established and character confirmed. How do we get this new mind? <laughs> you know, so, so that we can form righteous habits to confirm our character. You know, we can't do it ourselves. It has to be given to us from a power that is outside of us. Let me try to explain this by, by sharing with you an example. An example that actually is found in nature. And I've shared this with, with, uh, you know, before a number of times, and some of you may have heard me share this before. But, so, you know, please be patient and bear with me if you've heard this before. But I want to share an interesting fact about shrimp. As an example for our need to have our minds changed. You see, in response to some built-in primitive instinct that God created them with, every shrimp deliberately places a grain of sand in a special place in its head during molting. And at every molting cycle, that little rock is discarded along with the old armor and a new grain of sand is put carefully in place. Let me share this little quote with you. It's from a, a, an article that was found in the zooplankton of the Great Lakes. University of Wisconsin put it out. 
says, Shrimp will incorporate sand grains into their statocysts, which are sensory organs of balance and equilibrium, very similar to a human's fluid-filled cavity called the cochlea, which is for our ear, right? The sand grains move around in a fluid-filled sac as the animal moves, tilts, goes about its life, see? And in the process, the grains bend sensory hairs, which provide information about the animal's position in space. Isn't that very interesting? And because of the, uh, the unique function of those rocks, scientists call them status stones, or stones of standing. But I've read before, it's usually it's called a status stone. And without these status stones, the shrimp would be constantly confused and disoriented while swimming about in the water. You see, friends, it's only by feeling the slight tug of gravity on that rock in their head that they can recognize whether they are upside down or right side up. And in his great love and wisdom, God provided this mechanism to enable the shrimp to stay balanced amid the turbulent elements of its habitat there in the water. Now, knowing that, there was an interesting experiment that was performed by an Austrian physicist, or a physiologist. His name was Alois Kreidel. And he did this experiment in the late 1800s. And it dramatically demonstrated how the statocyst on a shrimp worked. Professor Kreidel placed 23 shrimp, a shrimp, picture this, 23 shrimp in a large aquarium. But instead of placing sand in the bottom of the aquarium, he placed metal filings. So when molting time came, each one of the shrimp picked up a piece of metal instead of a rock. And they placed that metal in their head. And then the professor placed a powerful magnet, an electromagnet over the top of the aquarium. And what do you think happened? Immediately, all the shrimp flipped upside down began to swim around the aquarium upside down. You see, because the pull of the magnet on the metal sliver was stronger than the tug of, uh, of the gravity, natural gravity, and they believed that up was down and down was up. Then the professor did something very unique. I think, in this experiment. He brought a shrimp in from the ocean, which actually had a rock in his head, and he placed it in the aquarium. Now, this newcomer that was on the scene, he was paddling around in the proper upright position, though he was swimming all by himself. This steel-headed, those steel-headed, 23 steel-headed wrong-way shrimp they had no thought that the new guy was really the only shrimp who was swimming in the correct way. You see, they had depended upon their feelings to determine their course. But now that their status stone had been tampered with, they were deceived into believing a lie. And friends, the more I thought of that experiment, the more I realized that all of us are in an aquarium as we make our way through this world. And there are powerful magnets of temptation that are all around us, trying to turn us upside down, trying to, to make us think in the, while doing that that we are actually right side up. And all of this points out a great truth. We cannot measure right and wrong just by our feelings. Our impulses may be just as real as the pull of that magnet was to those shrimp, but they could also be just as misleading. There is only one true, infallible status stone for us to depend upon if we want to hit the mark of God and not fall short of it. And if we want to have an abundant life, as Jesus promised, we need Jesus the rock as our individual status stone. Would you say amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 4. Paul talked about that. He said, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. 
They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So when the rock Jesus is placed in your head, friends, you will have a spiritual mind like His, one that is at enmity with sin. He provides, you see, a standard of truth which is always dependable, and He will keep us upright in the aquarium of the world. And every impulsive feeling that we have needs to be tested by the rock. The total lifestyle, including our words, our actions, our thoughts, they need to be under the supervision of that rock if we want to hit the mark and sin not, friends. You know, beloved, after Jesus was crucified, the apostles thought completely different than they had ever thought before. Do you realize that? The death of Jesus made a permanent change in their minds. And if you think about it and understand what happened there, it should make a permanent change in your mind too. That's why I spent some time looking at the price of the cross a couple weeks ago. Remember this statement I shared with you? It's from The Faith I Live By, page 60. The exceeding sinfulness of sin can be estimated only in the light of the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us that since Christ died on the cross, it should have an effect on us. It should change our minds. He said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Paul's telling us that because Jesus died for us, those of us that are alive should be constrained by His love to no longer live for self. Now let's compare that with Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Paul said, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Friends, Jesus was the majesty of heaven. He's God. But he didn't consider that something that he should hold on to. It was not something that he coveted being God. He emptied himself of all that. He left all that behind. He came to this world as a man. And when he came to this world as a man, fashioned like a servant, he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. For what purpose? To give us forgiveness and a mind to make right choices again. To allow us an opportunity. Remember that seed that we read about in Genesis 3.15? To have that enmity against sin placed within our minds. Jesus was willing to die so that we might live. He was willing to take our sins so that we could have His righteousness. He was willing to suffer so that we might not have to suffer. He was willing to experience eternal death so that we could experience eternal life. Friends, He esteemed us better than Himself. That is the love of God. And if Jesus did not have a mind like that, we would be lost. So as I close up, the question then is, how does Jesus give me a right mind? Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. You see, he forgives me my sins, and he removes my guilt. He then gives me a new heart, a mind that will make decisions for righteousness, that will bring glory to him by keeping his holy law. You're all familiar with Hebrews 10.16. 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. We don't write them in our minds. God does. And what does it mean to have God's law written in your mind? What is the basis of God's law? Oh, friends, the Savior sums it up. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 36. They came to Jesus. They said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And verse 40, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What is the basic principle of the law? It is just the opposite of selfishness, friends. Selfishness is when you love yourself. That's what the lower brain, that hypothalamus, usually tends and and, and tries to control the reasoning center because it loves itself. It loves to bring pleasure. But the basic principle of the law is, is that you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's just the opposite of selfishness. And when Paul tried to describe what love was, you know, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he said that it does not seek its own. That's verse 5. does not seek its own. It's not selfish. That is what it means to have God's law written in your mind, friends. Selfishness is taken out. God's law is written in your mind so that you love Him with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And that is what it means to have a new mind, one like that of Christ. Let me share this with you as I close. Lift him up, page 178. When we know God, as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. Friends, do you want to be able to hit the mark of God without falling short of it? Do you want sin to be hateful to you? You want to hate it? Come to the rock, Jesus Christ, and He will remove your guilt, He will give you a new mind that hates sin, and He will fill your heart with happiness, health, and peace. From this time on, for the rest of eternity. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for your wonderful love toward us. That you poured out all heaven so that we may be saved. You gave us the perfect gift that we needed. You gave us the perfect example that we needed. By accepting that gift and living by that example, we can bring glory to Thee as Adam and Eve did when they were first created. We pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us. We pray that You forgive us where we've fallen short of the mark. And give us that supernatural strength as we exercise faith in Your promises to overcome sin, to hit the mark when people see us and when we, we help people, we love our neighbor as ourselves, they see Jesus reflected in us. We thank you so much for the truth that you preserved in your holy word. We ask humbly that we may be the people of the book once again, that they may see Jesus in us no matter where we go. Help us to save our, our families, our neighbors, in the world, to your honor and glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray for these things, for he's worthy. Amen.